I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Hey, I want to welcome all of you listening in Washington, D.C., and those of you who are listening online through, through the station's online broadcast and those who will catch this program um, as, a, as a podcast later on. I want to thank you for listening. I also want to thank those who uh, did contribute during our fun drive, uh, not just to the station, but, uh, but to this program. And for those of you who didn't, you can still do so anytime. They're, you know, they've always got a pledge line open. They've always got their website available, available to donate. So if you didn't make a donation during our fun drive, uh, you still can call 202-588-9739. That's 202 202- 588-9739, or go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate. And look, I, I would just greatly appreciate you supporting this station that's providing me uh, space on their broadcast grid to, to do what I do. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that, uh, that are coming up. Um, but, I, but again, I, I couldn't do it without you. I couldn't do it without your listenership and without your support of this program and of the station. So, uh, so I thank you, but still ask, <laughs> ask that you, uh, you consider making a donation to the WPFW Jazz and Justice Radio. Uh, look, there's, there's always something going on. Uh, many of you know that I've been very active in, in the, the, uh, the mascot debate. Um, and there's no city that is more familiar with that debate than, than Washington, D.C. after uh, the debacles that have been created by the uh, owner of the Washington football team, uh, soon to be ex-owner or previous owner, former owner. Um, but, you know, this, this is an issue that, that I take to heart. Um, it's an issue that I think crosses over I mean, this idea of fetishizing Native people uh, it contributes to missing and murdered Indigenous women. It, uh, con- it contributes to the level of ignorance that we face with elected officials, judges, law enforcement, uh, industry leaders. And, and it's almost, and, I, and it, there's an ignorance that, that I almost can't blame. I, I don't blame it on stupidity. I blame it on the fact that the vast majority of um, American people, U.S. citizens, are taught that Native people are just relics of the past, that, that, that we represent a period of American history that ended with discovery. So even when you bring up various um, issues associated with Native people, and I, I call it being siloed, you look at something like Little Bighorn or Custer or uh, Wounded Knee uh, in, in general, or, you know, or any of these things, you look at them as isolated incidents. I, you know, I mentioned there's a, there's a movie coming out um, in October, Killers of the Flower Moon, about the Osage murders. But you also have to consider that while the Osage were being murdered for literally for decades, it's the same time period that the Tulsa massacre occurs. And, and we, we have a tendency to, to never consider the broader picture of what's happening, you know, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. And so when you, you only look at American history um, uh, as event by event, 
without having any context to it. And when you look at native history, you, you know, through an even tighter lens, then you, I mean, look, it's even hard to parse out, okay, so when was scalping legal and when were bounties? Well, I'll tell you, it, it starts with, with New England under, under the King of England and continues, uh, you know, in, in California during the gold rush. I mean, that's a huge swath of, of, of history. And, and yet most people, you know, are, are basically clueless. By some estimates, between 20 and 30% of U.S. citizens don't even know Native people exist. And it's a higher percentage that don't know that Native people exist in places like New York State. You know, so it's, you know, it's really, there's really a, such a, um, almost insurmountable amount of ignorance associated with, uh, with American history uh, and with, with the history that involves us as a part of U.S. history. And, and look, I'm not saying everybody has to be a historian, everybody has to be a, you know, a history buff, but there's certain things that if you don't understand the context, if you don't understand why Native people stand up the way we do, why, you know, why do I have resistance radio? Why do I call it resistance radio? Well, part of it is because just trying to exist as a Native person means that we have to resist an ongoing 500-year effort to either eradicate us or assimilate us. You know, I, I've, I've talked about genocide. I mean, I, I just listened to a, to a, a great speech uh, by uh, uh, a man named uh, um, Standard who wrote, the, uh, wrote a book called The American Holocaust. And there was a lot of controversy with him even calling the Native experience not just a, a Holocaust, but, but a genocide. And, and I've even heard Native people. I mean, somebody that I've been at odds with for years who many people hold up as this iconic Native activist, Suzanne Harjo, she, she argued with me both about whether our experience qualifies as genocide or not. She tries to say, well, genocide is just about racism. I mean, I don't, I don't know how an educated woman who has her stature could be that ignorant about what genocide is. But she also said that to call our experience the American Holocaust, or even to use that word, is somehow denying the Jewish Holocaust. You know, and, and Standard makes a, a point. That word Holocaust is not invented by, you know, out of the 1940s. It was used, I mean, Bartolome de la Casas described what, what Columbus and his men were doing to Native people as a holocaust. That's going all the way back to the, to the 1500s. That word has been used over and over again in everything from the you know, uh, Armenian genocide to, you know, to, you know, to, to these ethnic cleansing and genocides that have taken place you know, throughout the world. Now, the fact that when we see the word capitalized as the Holocaust, we automatically assume that, they, that, that they're referencing you know, the Jewish Holocaust. I'm not denying any of that. I mean, I know there are plenty of people who would, will argue some of that, the, the details of you know, who, who were the real victims. It wasn't just Jews. But I mean, and I'm not denying the atrocities that, uh, you know, that were committed under the Nazi regime. There's also no denying that the, the, the Nazis modeled some of what they were doing after what Americans had done to, to, to us, to the Native people. 
so I mean, it's it's sometimes amazing to me that there's such a level of ignorance about what has transpired and the fact that this genocide continues today. I have to say it over and over again. Assimilation is still genocide. I mean, the, the, one of the definitions of genocide is creating the conditions that would, would cause the people to cease to exist. Well, if you try to eradicate our distinction, and, and look, we are, we are under a constant assault for eradicating our distinction, our identity, our autonomy. There's a case, and I'm going to talk about this in a future show. There's a case that's before the Supreme Court, and, and look, we, we could get a ruling any day in Hallen versus Brackeen. And that's a case involved that's a, supposedly just about the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's about trying to tear the Indian Child Welfare Act apart. Now, I'm not a big fan of, of ICWA, as it's, as it's called. And partially, part of the reason I'm not a big fan is because it still never places our people with having the, the authority to determine when a child should be removed from a home and where that child should be placed. It still, it still leaves that with the state. I mean, ICWA provides federal guidelines and guardrails, as they say, for the states to, to follow, that they must follow, that says, well, if a native child is pulled from, from a native home, um, there has to be the utmost priority placed on putting that child back in a native home, even if that native home is of, of a different nation or uh, you know, a different territory. And, and part of the thing is that what they tried to do with ICWA was put a higher value on keeping some cultural consistency with a child who, for whatever reason, has, ha, was deemed uh, to have been needed to be taken away from their, uh, their home. So to, to provide a cultural consistency. And so ICWA does, and I'll give ICWA credit, it, it does place a higher value on the, the cultural aspect of the upbringing of a child. But what it doesn't do is, and, and, and people try to claim that it does, it doesn't recognize our sovereignty. It recognizes the value of culture and, and tries to place a, a high priority on the distinction of that culture. But it still does not officially recognize our right to even to determine the fate of our own children. It, it still makes, turns it into a wrestling match between the federal government and the states. And to me, that's a problem because not only does it turn into a state's right fight and, and actually puts us in the, in the background, it turns into a fight between states and the federal government and, and uh, government overreach and all of that other stuff. But it also tries to make the argument that we, uh, that, that certain laws that try to protect native autonomy, since the federal government doesn't really recognize our sovereignty, that they are a violation of the equal, equal protection uh, clause of the U.S. Constitution because it is giving a racial preference. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh, in the oral arguments, asked the question, so if a child is, um, has a family that has all of the, you know, the amenities and, and, uh, and all the qualifications for, for being in the best interest of that child, that family can be denied the opportunity or the privilege to, to take that child simply based on the race. And he said that. He said race. He didn't say culture. He didn't say the distinction, you know, or, or anything else. He just said that a family could be denied the right to adopt a native child simply because of their race. 
And therein lies the problem. And so when I talk about our battle for hundreds of years to maintain our distinction, this case about ICWA, the ICWA challenge or the Hallen versus Brackeen case, really stands to possibly diminish Native people to merely a race of Americans. Now, look, some of you listening may say, well, isn't that true? Aren't you just a race of Americans? No, we aren't. Many of us won't even claim U.S. citizenship. We maintain, look, I'm Mohawk, I'm Gunyagahaga. That's, that's who I am. I'm, I'm part of a separate people than you, the U.S. population. And you know what? And I'm also separate than other, other Native organizations, other Native entities. I live on sovereign land. I live on land that is not part of the United States. I live on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. I don't live in New York. New York may be you know, around us here, but I don't live in New York. I don't live in the United States. I live in Seneca territory. And that level of distinction is always under assault. It's always under assault. I mean, and even when we have Supreme Court justices that, you know, that try to say that they favor Native rights and that kind of stuff, they still always look at us within the context of being Americans and being a part of, of the U.S. citizenry. And the crazy part is, in this ICWA challenge, in this Brackeen case, we almost have to make the argument that Congress has plenary powers over Native people, which is something that I'm staunchly opposed to. We never gave our sovereignty up to Congress. And they base this whole plenary powers doctrine on one line from the U.S. Constitution, and that's the Commerce Clause. And the Commerce Clause, all it simply says is that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among several states and with Indian tribes. It only says that Congress has the authority to regulate commerce and not of Indian tribes, but with Indian tribes. And to suggest that that line somehow is the basis for this plenary powers doctrine. And by the way, if you don't know what plenary powers mean, it means absolute power. So the argument is that Congress has been given the authority in the Constitution to have the final and ultimate say over the affairs of Native people. And that's just wrong. I mean, to say that based on the Commerce Clause would be to say that Congress has the power to uh, over foreign nations because it's the same language. It says you shall have the, uh, the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among several states and with Indian tribes. Well, Congress doesn't have the authority over, over other nations. I mean, the United States may have acted that way, but they don't. And to, to suggest that, that this plenary powers doctrine is legit, we get in, in these strange situations where that's our defense. So if, if we are, you know, somehow involved in this case, and really this is between the Interior Department, essentially, you know, how, and, and this white family in Texas. The fact that we have to argue which part of the federal government or the, or the U.S. government, so whether it's state or federal government, has authority over us, when we're really trying to maintain our autonomy and our decision? How do we, how do we suggest that we're sovereign if we're saying that the Congress has plenary powers over us? And 
That's not our invention. That's you know who came up with that one? The Supreme Court. So they they build this notion of plenary powers for Congress over native people on this one line from the US Constitution. And and I've listened. I've listened to some of the debate over this case. And the fact that we have to have native lawyers representing native people saying, well, the states don't have that authority, only Congress has that authority. It's it's like we don't even bring up our own sovereignty issues. And to the extent that we we talk about our sovereignty, we concede somehow that Congress has the power to regulate the meets and bounds of our of our sovereignty. Well, when did we give that to them? I mean, when did the United States conquer 600 nations? I mean, they may have had um, battles with, with 50 or so, and they didn't win them all, by the way. But to suggest that we are victims of conquest, you know... I'm not suggesting that 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 we are as autonomous as we once would have been. And but I will also say that this wasn't just a military conquest. This was fraud, deception, outright lying, entering to treaties that the United States never planned to to ever, you know, uh, uh, follow through on. The treaty making process of the United States was one with which we're going to write these things down to subdue native people. We're going we're gonna to defraud them. We're going to tell them, we're going to make promises that we have no intentions of keeping. And those promises range from everything from, from making payments for land sessions to providing food and services. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, states like New York State have been um, uh, regarded, or I mean, they are relegated to, um, to our health care when that's a, a federal promise. I mean, it was the federal government as our lands were being diminished and, and the ability for us to, to live viable, healthy lives was diminished with those land sessions. It was the federal government that, that took the responsibility for, for providing health care. But now it rests with the states? And, and the states don't even fight back. I mean, it's look, so this is one of the issues that, that I really have to talk about going forward. And... Uh, you know, probably in next week's show, I'm going to do a total breakdown of the Hallen v. Brackeen case. Um, and I don't know. We could have a ruling by then. So I don't know what, what that conversation in total is going to look like. But I, but I want to go through that, um, that case point by point, um, including, you know, the, the benefactors of the Brackeens, which is the oil industry who stands to benefit greatly if they could reduce us um, and diminish our sovereignty to the point that we were only regarded as a rather inferior race of Americans. So I'm going to talk about that. Another big subject coming forward is, uh, is, going, is over um, the Seneca Nation's uh, gaming compact. It, it appears that they come to some agreement with New York State, at least an agreement of principle uh, with New York State. And once again, the leadership of the Seneca Nation with their brilliant legal counsel has agreed to pay an ungodly amount of revenue sharing to New York state for essentially nothing. I mean, they, they call it an exclusivity, but there, the state cannot compete directly against the, the Seneca nation with class three gaming. Why? Because their own laws, some, you know, prohibit a lot of it in order for the, the state to offer a license in Western New York in the Seneca gaming market they would have to pass it through the legislature. Um, they would also have to find a 
a willing um, purchaser of a gaming license, which these things are going for like half a billion dollars. So you'd have to find somebody who'd want to pay half a billion dollars for a gaming license, then build a casino for another half billion to a billion dollars, and then compete against the Seneca Nation that is well established with three major uh, class three gaming sites, possibly four, maybe another one coming uh, coming in Rochester. Um, and and if the Senecas don't pay anything to the state, those gaming sites would, um, you know, and they would only be there if there was no so-called exclusivity, but they'd, they'd literally have to um, <laughs> operate their casinos at a 30 to 40% operating margin disadvantage. Who would finance such a thing? I mean, what brain trust would want to, uh, uh, to enter into an already saturated market with established gaming venues that are successful and that have to do so at a 30 to 40 percent uh, operating margin disadvantage? I mean, it's, it's not paying the state that provides the Senecas with exclusivity. Paying the state, and we're talking about billions of dollars here. From what I understand, what I've heard of the, the agreement is that the Senecas will be paying close to 40% of their net revenue of their slot machines. They, they say it's like just below 20% of the net slot drop, but net slot drop means the money um, that goes into a slot machine minus the payout. So if the, the state gets 20% of that, and the Senecas are left with 80% of it, out of the 80%, the Senecas have to pay for all of the operating costs of the casino. And by, ta- by the time you take all of those operating costs out, it's, it's closer to a 60-40 split. And the state would get that for nothing because they can't, build, they can't and won't and would never build casinos in that area anyway. And to the extent that they, they can compete now, with class two and lotteries and sports betting and possibly mobile betting coming along on off your phone or your computer, they will, they have, and they continue to, they expand their lotteries every year. They don't, they don't roll them back. They've got three racetracks that they've turned into, into into casinos with, with slot machines that look and play and sound and uh, in every other way, just like class three slots, but they're considered class two. That's how they get around it. And they've been doing it for years. So the state continues to to take market share from the Senecas, even as the Senecas pay to protect their market share. I mean, it's it's absurd. So that's another show that's coming forward. Um, Ultimately, the Senecas have to um, get this compact approved through a a Seneca Nation referendum. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm going to be very vocal about my opposition to paying the state revenue sharing. Because at the end of the day, it isn't about exclusivity. It, what, it's, what it's about is pay to play. And their lawyers tell them that. They say, look, we can't really say that, but at the end of the day, we've got to pay the state um, to buy their willingness to, be, uh, to enter into these compacts, which is not true. And you know what? If the state doesn't want to enter into a gaming compact, that doesn't end the Seneca gaming operations. The federal government did, didn't give the states the authority to shut down a gaming casino a native casino, they, they did put a requirement that they have to enter into a compact. But if, if the states don't want to do it, then the Senecas can work it out with the federal government. And in fact, the, the skirmish that the Senecas had gone through with the state, which, which, which ultimately ended with the, uh, with the 
with Kathy Hochul, Democratic governor of the state of New York, freezing the accounts of the Seneca Nation to extort a half a billion dollar payment of revenue sharing to them just so she could beat the deadline for the state budget and then turn around and give that, uh, you know, most of that money to the local billionaire who owns the Buffalo Bills for a new stadium. I mean, it, it really is that simple. She froze the accounts of the Seneca Nation, forcing the Seneca Nation to surrender what they claimed was, you know, due revenue sharing, which was $560 million. Then she turned around and gave over $400 million of that to Terry and Kim Pagula, the owners of the Buffalo Bills, so they can uh, have that much of a head start in, in ultimately what's going to be almost a billion dollars worth of state aid that goes to this uh, to building this casino or this uh, football stadium. Now, most states don't publicly finance a private enterprise like uh, like a football stadium for a billion dollar, you know, for for billionaires or for for these multi-billion dollar sports franchise. But Kathy Hochul, she's a local hometown girl here. She's a Bills fan. So she didn't mind screwing the Senecas to to give, you know, several, you know, 400 million dollars to the local billionaire who honestly didn't need it. I mean, he could have bankrolled this this whole this whole enterprise by, by himself. And the crazy part is she didn't just take that money from the Senecas because ultimately the Senecas probably were going to pay that money to the state. She took it from the state coffers because that money would have gone to, it was supposed to go to like education and, you know, and tourism and, and all, all kinds of other things, you know, but, but no, that's not what's happening here. It went into the, uh, into the bankroll of a, of a billionaire. So, I'm going to talk about the Seneca's gaming compact coming forward. Now, another issue that has kind of been quietly percolating for years is, is the New York State Thruway runs through Seneca territory. Yeah, and I know most people listening you know, who are familiar with the Thruway think about the Thruway as it runs into New York City or maybe across the state. But as it goes into western New York, it actually cuts through Seneca territory. And that deal was, quote-unquote, negotiated back in 1954. The state paid the Seneca Nation $75,000 for an easement. That's it, $75,000. And this was for a road that was only supposed to be a toll road for a short period of time, just to pay for the road, but has been a toll road since 1954. And the Senecas have a sign up as you go through um, through. Western New York, and it says that the state owes them $675 million in tolls that they've collected for that stretch of road. And, and, you know, and the Seneca's have been battling this. Now, this isn't just because the, the, the state screwed them in the negotiation. And, and frankly, the, the, you know, the threat out there was the threat of termination. In the 50s, this was one of the, the U.S. policies. And one of the U.S. policies was to terminate Indian tribes. And what that meant was the federal government would, would deem themselves no longer responsible for the trust relationship between the United States and these tribes. And why would they be no longer? Because of assimilation. They would argue that Native territories, Native peoples have been assimilated so much that they no longer needed to be recognized as distinct Native people. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's what we're always going through. And but the thing is about this throughway, and the real legal challenge here is that 
there's this thing called the Non-Intercourse Act. And no, it's not about sexual intercourse. The, the Non-Intercourse Act is about a federal regulation that says the states can't, um, I mean, basically, they, they, couldn't, they can't treaty with native territories. You know, they can contract, but they can, you know, obviously, they, we have gaming compacts. But they, they can't take lands without federal um, intervention or involvement. And, and that means not just take title to lands, but they can't um, uh, take control of, of native lands without feder federal involvement. And the state knew what the federal guidelines were for trying to get an easement for this through it. They knew. They'd asked prior, you know, in fact, many years prior to the, to the actual proposal. So they knew what they had to get. And they just said, the hell with that. We're not going to go through the federal process. So the entire throughway deal was done with the Senecas sitting in a very weak position, you know, at the table with the, with the state. I mean, the Senecas even said, look, if you're going to collect a toll, we want a piece. And they said, no, no, you can't have that. And in fact, some of the, the negotiators for the state laughed about it. And they, they joked about how much, how, how they got over on the Senecas and how little they paid for the land. I mean, they... They made light of it, but they did so without any federal, uh, federal involvement. So the argument that the Senecas have been making in court is that this was an illegal deal because it didn't have any federal approval. And this gets to one of these issues. And, and look, it, it relates back to ICWA and the so-called the trust responsibility the federal government is supposed to have, right? And the failure of that responsibility. It also gets back to things like the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and the fact that the, the Interior Department does nothing to, um, you know, to hold states accountable when they are acting tyrannically towards native territories and, and squeezing money out of, their, <laughs> out of the gaming revenue. But this is another example. The, lo the law is clear that land cannot be acquired or taken control of without federal intervention. But when we go into courts, the courts are not just hesitant, they actually refuse to fully acknowledge that there was a failure here and that there was a law broken. So any, any situation where the federal government is supposed to play a role in, in essentially defending, you know, the, these laws, whether it's IGRA, ICWA, or, you know, you know or the Non-Intercourse Act, in almost every occasion, the federal government fails to. And of course, these get challenged in courts. And, you know, at least sometimes these court cases go up to, you know, can go all the way up to the Supreme Court, like what's, what's happening with the Brackeen case. And in, in those courts, they won't just, I mean, they won't even just consider the fact that the law was broken. No, they've got to look at it in a broader way. They've got to say, well, what are the implications if we rule in favor of Native people? You know, what could that cost the, the, you know, the federal government? What could that cost the American people? It doesn't matter what the injustice is. They're going to value, from a national interest standpoint, whether this would have negative implications in the national interest of the United States. Not about what's right and wrong. And this is what we find in every instance. There is no question that the New York State Thruway was built illegally as it crossed Seneca land. And probably other places as well. But to get a court to just acknowledge the most basic black and white facts of the law when Native people are party to those, those conflicts, it's impossible. This is, you know, this is what we face. Now, I mean, so it isn't just the politics. It's the, it's, the, it's the court system, 
And at the end of the day, when we have you know, the, these conversations in public, we know that, that basically the, the general rank-and-file American U.S. citizens understand what our position is. And they, they're somewhat supportive. Now, look, the first time we shut down a throughway or a bridge and, and people are inconvenienced, we, we lose that support pretty quickly. So for us, it's, it's always a tough challenge because, look, if the courts are not the proper administrative remedy for us to deal with, you know, with violations by states or, you know, or whomever, then what recourse do we have? There, there, I mean, there's no international court. So that's why we do spill out onto the thruway and shut it down. That's why we do go to Standing Rock, and that's why we do converge on why. Look, we've got to do whatever we've got to do. Part of the reason that I took the, the mascot fight to the New York State Department of Education was because I didn't want to get involved in the legislative process, and I certainly didn't want to have to ask anything of, this, of the current sitting governor or the previous one, because these two Democratic governors have been among the most racist governors that we've ever experienced, in, at least in my lifetime. Yeah, you heard it from me. <laughs> so I didn't want to have to go through their legislative process. And to me, the most benign, politically anyway, organization that I could have possibly fought this mascot issue with was the education department. And I'm not saying there's, there's no politics involved in, you know, obviously these people are appointed and, you know, they oftentimes are associated with the current administration, even though in this situation, most of the people who sit on the Board of Regents and that are part of the uh, New York uh, State Education Department were not nominated by this current governor. But, you know, but I understand that these, these are non-elected political positions for all intents and purposes. But they are certainly less political in nature. I mean, the, the education department is entrusted with the education of children. And I felt like pushing this issue with them rather than the legislature. Now, look, I think it'd be great if the, if the New York State legislature came behind this this policy ban from the education department and codified it in law. I think that would be great if they did that. I'm just not optimistic that they will. Why? Because of the, the political divide that exists in the United States, in every state, on almost every issue. Look, it's not just abortion or LGBTQ rights. This mascot issue turned into a right and left thing where the right, you know, Charges that this is wokeism and, uh, you know, critical race theory and, you know, uh, cancel culture. And the left who says, no, you're, you're just mocking Native people. That's considered wokeism as far as the right's concerned. So, you know, so even something like using a racial slur like Redskins for a, a football team or a high school team or, or whatever can no longer be just looked at as, as what it is, mockery and slander. No, it has to turn into a right versus left conversation. And, and, and that's the situation with everything. Look, when we stand up for environmental issues, oh, that's just the, that's just the liberal agenda. You know, it's not even Native people. It's, it's Native people being pushed by the white liberal elite. Every time we stand up for something, we get charged with being liberals. <laughs> you know, and the fact of the matter is, I frankly can't stand the, the last two Democratic governors of, of the, the state of New York. And you know what? While I can't stand 
folks like Donald Trump or this Ron DeSantis, the, the Democratic presidents uh, and nominees and uh, candidates have been terrible as well. I've said it before, but when, when I heard Barack Obama stand up and praise the Homestead Act without acknowledging the death and destruction that the Homestead Act caused to Native people and praise the, the courage and perseverance of the Western settlers, I'm, I, I was pissed. I mean, and even his comment about the Washington football team, you know, everybody says, oh, yeah, Obama said that they should change the name. No, here's what Obama said. He said, if I had a team, in spite of its story tradition and, and all of that, and that, but that team had a name that a significant number of people found disturbing, I'd think about changing the name. So he said, if I had a team, and if that team had a name that, that bothered some people, a significant number of people, he said, I think about changing the name. I mean, that's typical of Barack Obama. Throw in so many hypotheticals that you actually say nothing. But then the way people can interpret it is, oh, yeah, he told Washington they had to change the name. No, he didn't. He didn't. And it also, he also turned it into a bit of a numbers game. He said, if a significant number of people found that, that name problematic. Well, I got news for you. We are not a significant number of people. Any place. Even in total, we represent less than 1% of the U.S. population. I mean, depending on how you enumerate us, we probably represent less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of the U.S. population. Especially if you are looking at us as people living on Native territories. I mean, we are a re really small population. We can't affect the outcome. I mean, I heard people say, well, it's the Native population that helped uh, uh, Biden win Arizona or something like that. No, that's not true. Because I, because here's the thing. <laughs> Native people, when we do vote, which we don't for the most part, I mean, we are, you know, we probably have the, the look, Native people don't vote in their own elections. <laughs> uh, they vote at a very small rate. But in, in state and U.S. elections, that number is even less. And you know what? Na some Native people vote conservative, not just liberal. They vote Republican, not just, I mean, I know, I know a fair number of Native people who still think Donald Trump was a great president. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry to say that. I'm embarrassed by it, too. <laughs> but if you think Joe Biden has been a great answer to, to Donald Trump and you're, and you're Native, well, I, I tell you, you got another thing coming. Appointing Deb Haaland as the Interior Secretary is not reparations. <laughs> it is not a gift to us. I would argue that Every time we lose a native person to um, a state or federal administration, that's exactly what we did. We lost them because now they work for them. They don't work for us. Deb Allen doesn't work for native people. She serves at the pleasure of Joe Biden. And her first and foremost um, priority is the national interest of the United States. I mean, I got into a debate back when, Obama was president, and there was, you know, and, and um, I think Scalia had passed away, and there was some talk that that Obama should nominate Diane Humatiwa from um, you know, from Arizona for the Supreme Court, and Native people were all over that. And I'm thinking, does anybody realize how right wing she is? I mean, she was recommended for a federal 
judgeship in Arizona by the Republicans. And lo and behold, the first case that she ruled on that involved Native people, she ruled against Native people. I mean, look, it's great that she's Native and she's had success on her own, but she doesn't represent us. And in fact, if she did pander to us in her legal decisions, those legal decisions wouldn't hold up anyway. So she ends up ruling in a, in a case of a highway that's going to cut through Native ancestral lands that was fought on, on so many um, you know, Native rights issues, and she ruled against the Native people. Well, dig it up, dig it up, put a highway through there. I mean, it's still being challenged. In fact, there's, uh, that issue is, is on appeal today, and there's an effort by, I think, 20 other federally recognized nations, tribes, um, to raise issues, and the 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 um, the state is basically saying, no, you can't enter that into evidence because it wasn't a part of the original case, and you can't enter in new new facts and new complaints in in uh, on appeal. And it will end up losing. I mean, so not only did Diane Humatiwo rule against the native people in the, in the first place, we'll probably continue to lose that case, and so they'll run a highway and dig up um, you know ancestral lands of, of native people in the in the process. No federal protections. No, that, that trust responsibility. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, and I talked about this before, so I got to mention it again. When they say trust, when the federal government says trust, they don't mean trust as a virtue. They mean trust as in trusteeship, as if we are genuinely wards of the state and that they have this custodial role to play in our lives. And, and of course, they, they actually do have an overbearing role in some territories, not so much in others. You know, I mentioned earlier that many people, you know, there was even an, an interior secretary in the 40s who was named by Eisenhower, I think it was, who didn't even know New York had any Native people in it. When she, there she's serving as the interior secretary of the United States, and she didn't know there were any Native people, any quote-unquote Indians living in New York. You know, and there's, there's part of a reason that, that that level of ignorance could exist. And part of it is associated with the fact that, that we have been buried. We've been buried not only with these assimilation efforts, but we're, we, we've been struck from the history books. Again, a period, our, our, we ended with, with discovery as far as most Americans were ever taught. In my age group, when I was in school, we we learned the periods of American history as, you know, specific periods. So you had Indians, discovery, colonization, revolution, you know, revolutionary war. And, and so you went all the way up to World War One, World War Two, you know, you know, depression, you know, up until the contemporary times. That's the way uh, that's the way history was taught. It was, it was taught in these very specific, almost rigid the dates that they stopped started and the dates that they ended periods of history. I don't think it's done quite that way anymore. And, but, but still, if you if you spend any time in an elementary school learning about native history, you're going to learn basic Pocahontas lies. You might learn a little bit about, well, what, what were the characteristics of an Iroquois in the 17th century or the 18th century versus an Algonquin or a, 
you know, the Plains in uh, Plains Native people or the Southwest. I mean, you know, you, you learn about Pueblos and Hogans and uh, longhouses and teepees. You're not going to learn about us, you know, taking over Alcatraz or, you know, standing up, you know, occupying the BIA building or, you know, you're not going to learn about activism because you can't teach that in school. I mean, they have to like really gloss over the civil rights era, you know, because they can't promote that kind of, you know, standing up for rights, really. You know, so this is, you know, look, this is the challenge, right? And, and this is why I do this show. You know, and I, you know, I got to come back. I mean, to WPFW providing me this space, providing me an hour each week to bring up issues that most of you have no idea about. And look, look, we're broadcasting the show in Washington, D.C., there should be plenty of people in Washington, D.C. who are aware of Native issues, who are aware of Native people, but they, they aren't. Even those who make money, even though all those lawyers and lobbyists and you know, political action organizations, they never delve into who we really are, and they don't want to know. You know, I, I always say this about these law firms that claim to be experts in federal Indian gaming or Indian gaming. They want consistency. They aren't looking for a breakthrough because they, they don't represent just one nation. They represent dozens oftentimes. And you know what? We can get into a debate when we're talking about lawyers and lobbyists. Who do they really represent? Do they really, I mean, look, they may be getting paid primarily by you know, in, in this situation by Native people. But when I hear about these lobbyists who are under contract with various nations and their jobs are to give access, somehow give Native people access to these halls of government and power, I, I question whether they are giving Native people access to the state houses or whether they're giving the state houses access to, to Native people. Because... In every instance, I see these lawyers, these lobbyists, these consultants advising our people to conform because conformity provides consistency. And that's what lawyers want. That's what these, these people, these paid professionals want. They want to, look, they don't want one organization to, to strike some great deal for gaming or environmental issues while others are, 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 you know, are in a weakened situation. And it's crazy because the U.S. legal system is based on case law, on precedent. So you could have a ruling in a court case that has nothing to do with, with another particular region, but they can say, yeah, but that establishes a legal precedent. Native territories aren't treated that way. It's not like you can, you can use a, you know, a, a treaty from one territory to another. You can always use the violation of that treaty as precedent. But the rights established in, in print, in, in law, and again, these, these treaties are supposed to be law, supreme laws of the land, they call them, right? But these, these rights or, or protections that, you know, that are oftentimes 
not the definition of who we are. I mean, look, we aren't defined by treaties, but some of those treaties do specifically address a, a concern. But to say that we only are entitled to the rights laid out in print in a, in a treaty is wrong. But when we do see one native territory that has language that su suggests something like that, we, we can't use that as case law across other native territories. Um, so it's crazy. They, they pass laws that will be applied all the, across all native territories. Uh, you know, ICWA, IGRA, you know, uh, all, all of these laws, right? They'll pass these laws and force them down our throats, even if we didn't ask for them, even if we had no role in, in, the, in the crafting of these laws, even though we have language in treaties that say we will never be disturbed in the free use and enjoyment of our territories, of our lands. But that's, again, that gets ignored. So we are in a constant battle. And, you know, and, and again, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to have this show broadcasting in places like New York City and in Washington, D.C., where there are significant spheres of influence in these, in these major radio markets. So, I, you know, look, I, I, I do. I, I, I praise WPFW for their commitment in providing space for Native Voices. And, and look, it didn't start with me. It's, you know, WPFW and WBAI, for that matter, have provided um, at least an hour of radio, sometimes more, um, for Native Voices for decades. So I do appreciate what WPFW does uh, in terms of providing me this space. And, of course, look, yeah, I put the shows up as podcasts. I put the shows up. Um, oftentimes I, I stream video of the shows on, on Facebook and, and the like, but it's primarily these stations, WPFW this, in particular for not, in this conversation, uh, providing me a space. So again, once again, I know we're out of the fun drive. Um, and I do appreciate all of you who did donate. Um, but if you haven't, and, and, and if you are still considering it, I do ask that you go to the pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate, and make a contribution to the station, and do it in the name of this program. Look, I know much of what I talk about on the show can be uncomfortable. You know, look, it's, it's why I start the show with Res Blues by Murray Porter. I mean, the things that Native people experience are unique. I mean, they're unique in, uh, I mean, and we actually experience racism in a unique way. I mean, just the idea that, <laughs> that schools have been using and, and sports teams and even, you know, um, college teams have used Native people for mascots. I mean, we know that blackface is wrong, but there are still people today that'll that will don red face at a baseball game or a football game or, you know, or, or, or a high school events. There are, there are cheerleaders. You know, there was a few years back, they were strolling through Disneyland, Disney world in Florida with cheerleaders donning headdresses. That's mockery. And to, to us, it's the same as blackface. But the fact that, 
we can't even have an intelligent conversation with people about this stuff. Instead, we get, I mean, ultimately, in, in these mascot battles, we get hit back with, with racist comments. I mean, I had one person say, well, you're nothing but a bunch of drunks who live off government handouts anyway. So we don't want to want you for our mascots. Well, I agree with the last part, <laughs> but make no mistake, white people are the primary re recipients of welfare. White people. And it's not even close. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't Native people, there aren't Black people, there aren't you know brown people you know receiving welfare, but the vast majority of people who are collecting social services are white. And I'm not condemning white folks. I mean, it's a shame that you know your your situation, in spite of your white privilege, uh, is so dire. <laughs> but yeah, again, what Native people experience is oftentimes not just racism, but a unique form of racism. Look, racism. When when a New York State governor could freeze the accounts of an entire Native territory, Native nation, the Seneca Nation freeze their accounts, jeopardize everything, every service, even paychecks of all of the people of the Seneca Nation just so she could squeeze a half a billion dollars out of an escrow account? I mean, she could have gone after the escrow account. She could have just seized that. But instead, she used a law that, is, that was actually crafted for fines that are due. So she treated revenue sharing essentially as a fine that was due to the, to the state of New York and squeezed it out of the Seneca Nation by freezing all of the other operational accounts. If that's not racism, I don't know what the hell is because that is the, the, almost one of the purest and extreme examples of white supremacy. The fact that, a, that this white woman sitting in the governor's mansion could could you know could have that much white privilege that much systemic racism at her disposal to do that to the you know to the Seneca people i mean that i i know some people don't, don't see it that way but trust me if you're on this end of that there's no other way to characterize that and look and if you're a person of color who is endorsing and supporting some of the activities of this governor or any elected official that, that operates in these racist manners, then I'm sorry, you're carrying water for them. And, and look, I got into it pretty good by, by accusing a few people of color from Western New York who are huge fans of, of Kathy Hochul. That's what I do on this show. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Um, that about does it for this program. I'll be back next week. And like I said, I've got plenty to talk about over the next few weeks. So continue to support the station, continue to support this program. And, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm John Kane, and this is resistance radio.